When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As 2021 comes to a close, I'm taking this month to share some of my favorite episodes of the last year. In 2020, I produced 51 episodes, and this year I've produced 48. And to tell you the truth, I just need a little rest. It's a really heavy lift every week, so this month I'm resharing some episodes that really moved me. This interview with George Saunders first aired in March 2021. I could have talked about samovars forever. If you haven't heard it, you're in for a treat. If you have, I'm sure there will be a new takeaway. Thanks for listening and on to the show. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with George Saunders, author of the craft book, a swim in a pond in the rain. But for me, you know, I'm kind of like kind of a working class uh, origin and I don't, I have kind of a low tolerance for art that I don't feel is essential. I, I mean, that's, I can admit that. I, I, I really want the stuff that, that speaks to my heart. We'll be back with George Saunders in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven and a half years, I've produced more than 320 episodes of First Draft. Last year, I produced one a week, and already I have interviews scheduled for every week so far through June. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved. Time and effort and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones, from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. We're going through monumental changes as a society. And as I discussed with the writer Claire Massoud in an interview late last year, the time for art is now. I emphatically believe this, and I believe that what we create, the writers and I and you, the listener, matters. There is an alchemy that happens with every single interview and every single production. So please, if you value this program, consider becoming a contributing member by donating at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. You can give any amount, but starting with $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, cuts that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips, and more. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going, and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. I believe these conversations about art and craft make life better. I hope you find inspiration and enlightenment of some kind in this and every episode. So whether this is your first listening experience or you have caught the more than 320 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft. I work hard to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics, which dependably add up to conversations that focus on what it means to be alive today. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, edit the show, and do more research. Because at the end of the shows, I recommend other shows I've done in the past that are similar. All of this takes more time than you can probably imagine. 
It takes equipment, organization, a lot of late nights, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. I know there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense to make. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of the show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. In fact, tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. My guest today is George Saunders, author of 11 books, which include nonfiction, essays, short stories, and a novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, which won the 2017 Man Booker Prize for fiction. George Saunders' story collection, 10th of December, was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the Folio Prize in 2013 and the Story Prize. His stories have appeared in The New Yorker since 1992. He has a degree in geophysics and since 1997 has taught at the Creative Writing Program at Syracuse University. His newest work, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, in which four Russians give a masterclass on writing, reading, and life, is a book focused on writing craft. Throughout the book, Saunders guides the reader through seven short stories written by four Russian authors, Chekhov, Turgenev, Tolstoy, and Gogol. A Swim in a Pond in the Rain is a technical and human exploration of what these authors were achieving in their stories. While the entire book is focused on craft, I asked George Saunders if the reader walked away with one piece of wisdom, what would it be? I don't know if I would have been able to answer this right when I finished the book, but from talking uh, to people about it, I think the sort of nugget is that um, when we're writing, uh, if we want to, I would say write better, but also if we want to write with less anxiety, uh, one way is just to think of the the whole shebang as a conversation between you and your reader. And so really the question is, how are you, how are you imagining your reader? How are you projecting about her? Uh, if you imagine her as being really smart and cool and uh, sort of on your side, but also maybe no pushover, et cetera, et cetera, then your prose is going to sound a certain way. If you're kind of imagining her to be someone less than you that you're trying to pull something on or trying to manipulate, or worse of all, if you're, you're sort of failing to imagine her, then the prose will be another way. So for me, the whole idea of saying, okay, look, I'm, I have an opportunity here in this book I'm writing to talk to somebody. Let me imagine that person as being as considerable as possible. And then I find a lot of the this, this sort of granular technical details get answered uh, in that envisioning of her. It's so interesting because so many writers say they can't, and some even often say, don't think about the reader, just do the art. Right. And now there's one more little twist I'd add to this is that when I go to do that process I just described, what I, f- I think, well, how would I, how can I do that? How can I simulate a person in my mind? And basically, I just substitute myself if I hadn't read the thing a million times. So in other words, it, this leads to another metaphor in the book, which is that you're kind of scanning the text as yourself, but you're kind of trying to imitate do you remember that there was a commercial that said, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. So you're kind of trying to get in that mindset. Like you're trying to play yourself if you hadn't already read the thing so many times. So that's a little bit of a, a an impersonation of yourself. And then as you're reading it, you're just, you know, you're really open and you're watching the energy that's coming off it and without any, you know, fear, without any defensiveness, haha. But, you know, you're trying to say, well, okay, what would this prose be doing to me if I wasn't so familiar with it? To me, that's exactly equal to saying what I said earlier, you know, imagining a reader who's really smart and really bright. That's you. So that kind of, you sort of have it both ways. You're, you are trying to communicate for sure at the highest level, but you sort of have to start with the only tool you have, which is your own perceptual apparatus, if that makes sense. It sounds a little crazy when I talk about it this way, but, but in practice, it's just, you know, picking up the, the paper starting to read it and allowing your mind to react to it the same way it would react to a book you picked up in a bookstore. You know, you don't, if you pick up the latest book by so-and-so, 
you don't really have any investment if it's good or not. So your your perceiving apparatus is really alert and it's really uh, fair. It just kind of starts reading. If you're drawn in at that point, it's good. If you're pushed back, I'm saying we, we have the ability to kind of go in and go, okay, very lightly, like you know, like you would to your kid. Okay, what's the matter? What's going on here? Uh, and then then we can make little corrections as we see fit. Something like that. I don't know. So in conceiving this book, this this these essays and these stories that you included were stories that you talked about and had thought about for years and shared with your students at Syracuse. Was there some kind of transformation that you had to to make or one that happened that you didn't know would happen when you took something that were generally oral stories and oral teachings and put it into the this book? Yes, and that was a magnificent writerly question. I, I, it, it's, you know, for all those years, um, I could sort of lead the, the students to the water, so to speak, and then they would drink. So you just say, okay, let's look at this page. You might notice this. And then with as good of students as we have at Syracuse, they'd be off to the races and I could kind of recede and just, you know, direct a little bit. So here, you know, you, you kind of lead the horse to the water, but then you're the horse and you're the water and you got to do all the drinking. So it was great, actually. You know, I, I, I sort of regretted that I hadn't, you know, 20 years ago sat down and wrote this book because uh, it, it made everything much more clear. And the, um, you know, as always happens, I think when you work with pros, you move from vague hyperbolic generalities to precision, you know, pre precise statements. So it was really a, a lot of heavy lifting to go from my notes, you know, that I'd been using for 20 years to, to actually, you know, somewhat finished essays for sure. One of the things that you, you said in, in the book, and this had to do with the singers, but hopefully we'll talk about many of these stories, was to think of story as a kind of ceremony. And I thought that was so beautiful. And I wonder if you can share a little more about that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in, in class, in, in workshop at Syracuse, uh, we're talking about stories at a really high level. So somebody will bring in a story that they worked hard on. And um, I've noticed that the best workshops are the ones where somebody in the room uh, kind of makes a very generous platonic statement of what the story is trying to be. In other words, before you launch into criticizing it, you have to kind of say, well, what is it? You know, what's its, what are its aims? So for me, this idea of ceremony is to say, uh, if you if you walked into a Catholic mass, for example, and you sat through it, uh, you would notice that there's a shape to it. It's all leading up to communion, is, is in my understanding. Um, so then what's cool about that is it gives you a way to, to evaluate every single instant in the ceremony because you, it was leading to something. Now, if, the, if it was just, you know, two, two hours of droning uh, with no dramatic shape, you know, it's all one part is as good as the next and it's all perfectly fine no matter how you do it. But as soon as you put in um, a culminating event into anything, um, it well, first of all, it puts some pressure on the person creating it because you have to make that event happen. But what's wonderful is it gives you then an sort of an aesthetic fulcrum to, to go in and say, okay, how's my opening? You know, uh, when do I need to stop this thing? Why, you know, what's the relevance of this particular song that we're doing 20 minutes in? Um, so I think for me, it's really helpful to say, looking at a story, mine or somebody else's, and say, basically, what's the reason for this thing to be in the world? Or I, I always love the quote that Dr. Seuss thing from, uh, I think it's from the sleep book, but uh, that's why I'm bothering telling you this. You know, so why are you bothering telling me this story? And, and once you figure that out, um, one, it, it, it makes a lot of pressure because if, if you're going on that basis, it really has to do something. You know, it does have to build up to a, a climax. Um, but once you determine it, it throws light on the whole rest of the story. And, and for us writers, the important thing is it, it gives us a way to make decisions. You know, we don't have to have that terrible feeling where you're looking at a paragraph and going, I don't know if I should cut or not. I have no idea. But if you think of it as a ceremony, you'll, you'll know. Is that something that you literally realized from the singers? No, I don't think so. I think that's a, that's a general principle that, um, uh, I, I invoked in order to talk about that story with more precision. I, I think a lot of these principles in the book, they really were, um, they were visceral realizations that I have picked up over the years of writing. So really they're just, I, I often say they're moves, you know, you develop certain moves. So, 
and, and I think it, when I'm writing a story, I'm not really at all rationally thinking of these things. I'm just feeling it. Like I, I have a, you know, I have a story going on and it's, you know, four pages of pretty clever writing, but there on page three and a half, I just start to get a little bit of a letdown feeling like, God, this guy is really relentlessly clever. Okay, so then what? Then you start thinking, well, oh yeah, so what is the point of this, this three and a half pages? What's it leading to or what's it causing? And that kind of, for me, it enforces a kind of necessary self-discipline to say, you don't, you don't just get to go on and on. You know, each bit, I feel like each bit needs to lead to something. So that's a principle. And then when you go to write a book like this, you formalize it and you, you, know, you make up clever examples, but you first learned it in your gut. Um, out of failure. <laughs> Why do you think all these lessons that you learned fit so well with the vehicle of these Russian writers? I just want to talk about them for a little. Like why why the Russians? I know you you said that there's other stories you love and even other Russian writers that you love, but why do you find these something that you come back to? And and part of it I wonder is is it something going on in Russia? Yes, and and that's what I think I love about them is that they they feel like, uh, you know, if you if you take twenty writers that you love, and then you find yourself in a personal crisis of some kind, uh, a lot of those writers just drop right off your shelf. You, it's not the time for them. You know what I mean? They're like they're good, but they're not speaking to me. For me, these Russians would be the ones who would be on the shelf at the very last minute because that's I think that's how they saw it. I think it was a uh, a difficult time. You know, lots of um, repression and lots of uh, you know, severity. And uh, so I think their stories have a moral ethical urgency that really appeals to me. But it's, it's also kind of a feedback loop because these were the, some of the first stories that ever really got under my skin. In the book, I talk about hearing Tobias Wolf read Gooseberries when I was a student. You know, it's kind of chicken or the egg. Like, did you read the stories and then were you influenced by them such that later, of course, they seem perfect to you? I think it's something like that, actually. You know, I, I was trying to figure out what stories were for and when I read these stories, they always moved me, you know, in a, I always say an emotional way. I'm not sure that's quite the right word, but they, they were kind of undeniable when I tried to um, fit them into my life. They always fit. They always, they always spoke to me. So then I started teaching them, which, of course, then would tend to underscore that whatever aesthetic basis they have. Uh, but for me, you know, I'm kind of like a, kind of a working class uh, origin, and I don't I have kind of a low tolerance for art that I don't feel is essential. I, I mean, that's, I can admit that. I, I, I really want the stuff that, that speaks to my heart. And these always do. Also, you know, these stories are, for some reason, great teaching vehicles. I think because they're simple. And also maybe just because they're a little, you know, they're musty. They're, they're, they're old. So, you know, they're just like basically sleds and, you know, and candles and, and uh, stuff that reads a little bit exotically to us. So we're not distracted by the by the contemporary accoutrements that um, might tend to uh, bring up uh, associations too easily and bring up opinions too easily. So in that way, it's a bit like sci-fi. You're kind of watching scenes play out from a world that's like yours but isn't yours, which then maybe tends to um, help you focus on just the simple story elements. But really, I just love them, to be honest with you. I, I don't know why. I was wondering, like with... Turgenev and the singers, one of the things that you said in your analysis was that, you know, he was really interested in reportage, in the descriptions of people he wasn't like, in the peasants and, and the country folk. But as we read it, we don't know this about him. Um, and though it illuminates the story, I was wondering when I was reading your analysis of all of these stories, um, and because stories, short stories especially, can be read again and again throughout your life and you get something different about it, how how important is it for the reader to know the circumstances of the writer? And how does that change the story, maybe for you as you look at these stories over time, but how important is it to know that? Yeah, I think it's, I think you should have, you should uh, be able to read a story and know absolutely nothing about the author and, and get the full power of the story. Where I think the background becomes interesting is when we go to the next step where as writers, we're kind of, you know, we've kind of got that story on the slab a little bit and we're taking it apart. Then that is going to speak to us a little bit about the relation between the person who wrote the story and the aesthetic properties of the story. That that can be really uh, important for writers, I think. In the case of Turgenev, 
he had this really wooden method of making up a story that I, and I quote um, Henry James, yeah, talking about it. Um, and he just had a very strange technique and his stories are very poorly staged dramatically, let's say there, you know, action will happen and then there's pages of exposition and a contemporary reader really balks at it. And, uh, but so if we, if we say, okay, that's who he was as a writer, he couldn't get around it. That was, that method seemed correct to him. Then you can find traces of that method in the story itself. So the, the lesson for us is that we have to take ourselves as we are, you know, especially if you've been practicing writing for a while and you're a grown up person and you've lived in the world and you've made hard decisions and all, and you've ex experienced blessings and all that stuff, then, you know, you kind of are what you are uh, to some extent. Now craft can move you a little bit and craft can show you which parts of yourself you want to emphasize and, or bring forward. But at some level, I think great art is always a matter of the accommodation of a complex flawed human personality with a, an artistic form. So, uh, you know, when I was younger, I thought the way you were an artist was you suppressed all the bad stuff in yourself. You know, you, 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 all that stuff that you were a little ashamed of and that you were awkward at doing, you just got rid of it. And then only this glowing, handsome, you know, uh, God among men was left on the page. But it's so much the opposite, I think, you know. So I think we can study these writers. And, you know, all these writers were flawed, of course, because there were people. But what's interesting is at this level, you can see the way that what might be a flaw personally and even might be a flaw artistically by way of craft gets converted into virtue. So that, to me, that's the, the real takeaway from this is that for any of us, you know, you're not going to exercise the parts of yourself that you don't like. But, but there's a way in which you can take a negative, what's seemingly negative energy, and through craft, you can convert it into a positive energy. And mostly, I think it's just by accepting it, by saying, you know, in my case, like I... I'm kind of a smart ass just by nature. I just am. Uh, uh, it's not a trait that I particularly love, but it's been me my whole life. So the odds that I would someday write a story completely free of that are very low. You know, that kind of sort of slightly edgy, fast talking quality. But if I admit it and, and put it into a story, um, then some other things can happen with that. It, it, and it actually couldn't happen without that because that's kind of my, my, um, my mode. So I'm not really sure if I'm answering your question, but I think my thought is you don't have to know anything about the writer to read this story. But when you start analyzing it, and especially when you start trying to pull wisdom from it, it's really good to know everything. I think, too, what embedded in that answer and, and is also in the book is also this idea that um, that art can be clumsy, that these stories are not perfect. And sometimes we go in to life, all kinds of life, into relationship, into our children, expecting perfection. And maybe we're tougher critics. We're certainly usually tougher critics on our own writing. But but having some compassion for the flaws actually sometimes makes the art better. Absolutely right. That You know, that perfect is the enemy of good is a great thing to remember. And especially because, you know, with these stories, okay, if we think of it again, conversationally, let's say that, you know, that you and I have been friends for a long time and, and uh, uh, we go out to lunch and somehow we get off on the wrong foot. You know, um, I, I want to give you some advice that you don't want to take. And I blurt it out badly and, oh, God, you know, suddenly, it, you know, lunch is seeming like nine, nine hours long. Um, that's not perfect, but it can be saved, right? So in other words, we, it's possible that 15 years from now, looking at that, back on that conversation, we might go, that was such a wonderful turning point in our friendship, you know? Now, how do we do it from that point? Let's say, you, you know, you're there and you, I just said something stupid and you're offended and I'm offended that you're offended. Um, how do we fix it? I think the number one way is to admit it, you know, to sort of both push back from the table and go, wow, we really are in a mess, aren't we? You know, once you do that, that the conversation is now not, is going to now form around that, that, imperfection. And in a certain way, that honesty is going to allow the conversation to complete itself in a way that's at a higher level and is honest and isn't a disaster. And it, and it actually could make us better friends. So I think that's like not a bad model for a story. You know, if you get off on the wrong foot in a story, or more often than not, you know, the story does something weird that you didn't plan for it to do, and you keep trying to stop it from doing that, but you can't, 
the amateur at that point quits and says, that's a bad story. But the professional says, like that conversation, okay, how can I, how can I turn to the story, acknowledge its flaws, and, and sort of build them into a, a better version of itself? And which is what I think Turgenev did in The Singers, although how he did it, I don't know. But, but it's, you know, that's a nice, uh, if, that, if you can buy into this idea, it's kind of cool because it means you don't have to abandon anything anymore. You know, you don't have to um, disavow part of yourself. You can just say, okay, I'm, if there's obvious errors, of course I'm going to fix it. But if the story has a certain heart to it, I, the first step is to accept that and, and uh, you know, a- allow the story to form itself around its own defects in such a way that it becomes a beautiful thing. I think, too, as a writer and reader, you have to accept a lot of paradox. Yes. And also, you know, we, we, we build that right into our reading experience. You know, if I, um, if I start off a, uh, a, a story with a long, self-involved male narrative, like, say, two paragraphs of just some dude, you know, praising himself, of course, you know, any reasonable reader is going to be put off by that. Her, her little needle is going to inflect into the negative thing. Uh, now, if, you know, at the beginning of the third paragraph, this guy says, um, you know, during my seventh marriage, well, th- that sentence sort of is like the author talking over his head a little bit and saying, look, I- I've noticed that he's a blowhard, and now I'm going to introduce some consequence into the fictional world. You know, in other words, <clears throat> this guy who's so, so obsessed with himself has been married seven times. Now, suddenly the, the author is acknowledging our discomfort. And that can happen in so many different ways. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think you could argue that that's actually what makes fiction so much fun is that kind of constant. It's almost like a tug of war. You know, you're on a rope with the author and she's pulling you in and pushing you back. And um, so, so that's kind of cool because it means any quote unquote mistake can be compensated for with a moment of uh, what we might call authorial acknowledgement. You know, does that make sense? Like if you, if you had, um, what we might on, on a first read see as an error in a story or a story going off course under editing, we can actually make that a virtue because if the, if the reader noticed it and we noticed it, then suddenly it becomes a, a feature of the story. You know, like if, if in a story it was, you've sort of messed up and, you know, you described that it was raining 10 days in a row every day, you know, it was raining. Um, well, either it's you not paying attention to the weather or actually it, it's a really rainy place. And if the reader has noticed that every every section begins with a description of a rainy day, uh, at some point she's like, does the author notice this? And when the author says ha- or has a character say something about the rain, then all is forgiven. I think that sort of reminds me of something you said when you were talking about the nose, which is a very um, a kind of absurdist story about uh, a man who who loses his nose it's cut off by a barber and the nose becomes its own thing going through town and they're finally reunited but you're also talking about how a story reacts to impossibility and that's what matters it's like the story has its own logic and sensibility and if you can meet the moment you could probably write anything in the world but you just have to meet the moment that's a beautiful phrase exactly right you have to see what you've done and then fess up you know or 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 bless it. Um, yeah. So, so in a way, you know, one of the other ideas in the book is that a story is not, I mean, a story of course has to have some relation to the outside world, but it doesn't have to be linear or exact, but what it does, a story is always responding to itself, you know? So in the first paragraph, Gogol says, uh, the barber finds a nose in his bread. Now, it could be that somebody, you know, it's a murder mystery, but if we find out that actually, no, he, you know, it's not that. Um, well, so that doesn't happen in the real world. Uh, and then a few pages later, the nose is human size walking around. That doesn't happen in the real world. But we don't care about that, really. We're not, we're always asking the writer, okay, if I give you this, if I grant you this implausibility, what are you going to do with it? And the writer is saying implicitly, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you a truth about the world that's so big, I can't use mundane reality to get there. You know, you think of Kafka or even like Monty Python for that matter. Um, so I don't think we really, uh, so, so this leads to the bigger principle that, um, that storytelling is a matter of, of invoking a reaction in your reader and then somewhat approximately 
accurately knowing what their reaction was and then building on it, you know? So that, so again, I'm always looking for, because I'm a naturally anxious person and because I came to writing late and I didn't really, hadn't been trained in it. I'm always looking for an approach that minimizes my anxiety a little bit and lets me think about writing in a way that's a little more intuitive and that has something more to do with sort of like personal charm. In other words, if you, if I'm sitting at a table of people, uh, I kind of intuitively know how to tell a story or how to, how to keep their attention. Uh, so for my own purposes, I want to, I want to pretend that writing is something like that. So for me, it's always a matter of keeping the, the concepts kind of simple, uh, and, and, and visceral and as opposed to, you know, grand and theoretical. So in this case, you know, you're, you, you think, well, I'm going to say something. Once upon a time, there was uh, a duck who could do a backflip. Okay, now I just blurted that out. Uh, a reader reading that sentence is going to be slightly in a different position than she was before she read it. And my job is to go, okay, where is she? And sort of feel, not, not articulate the answer, but feel the answer. She's feeling skeptical. You know, she, she's wondering what I'm going to do with this backflipping duck. Um, and then from there, you're off to the races. And you could actually imagine a story as just, a, you know, 15,000 of those moments where there's, there's an expectation extant, existent, whatever. And then uh, I alter it and there's a new expectation. That's the whole kind of cycle. For me, that's simple. And, and I can kind of work with that as opposed to someone saying, oh, you know, three-act structure or the secret of plot is blah, blah, blah. That stuff never really worked for me. In the very beginning of the book, it, it might have been before you even got into the cart, you, you wrote about how structure is just a call and response. A question arises and then the story answers it and then another question arises. So I think with this call and response and the duck doing a backflip, it, it makes me think a little bit about, it, you wrote also elsewhere that, that you're not quite in control and that that we are not in control that um i mean you didn't never use the words like your subconscious but that there's this other element like maybe it's like a second person in the room when you're writing it's like all your experiences and what you're thinking about and what you've read that comes out on the page and that you kind of just have to to go with that 100% and i and i i think i would use the word subconscious but i'm not entirely sure that that's it that that's all it is but you know that's exactly right and one of these simplifying concepts is just that that thing, whatever it is, is first of all, it appears very happily, very amiably when your ruminating stops, you know, you, your conscious mind, thinking, 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 deciding, conceptualizing, when that goes a little quiet, that other thing comes in. It's there all the time. It's just, you just make a little room for it by, by t dialing down your thoughts. So I think that's what we're doing when we're writing, you know, we're concentrating and if we're concentrating in the right flavor, we're doing something like we're not deciding. You know, we're, we're reading, we're scanning, we're feeling whether a sentence is, is right for us or not. And I think in that mode, it, somehow the rumination dies down and this other thing shows up. And it feels to me always like an instinct, like, ooh, that's cool. You know, just put in that phrase, cut out that thing. Um, and the, the weird thing is for me, that's the whole gift. It's just you're reading some of your own text your conscious mind goes quiet, you're kind of liking it, and then you're, that little voice just tells you what to put in or take out. And then the sort of additional part of this is that you, then I do that, you know, for months over and over. So the, you know, the text becomes, I was going to say the victim, but that's not right. It becomes the receiver of thousands of micro choices that you've made over the months. And each one of those choices has been given to you by that moment's intuition. So that's, to me, that's really happy because it means that the whole job of writing is easy. You don't have to decide anything authoritatively ever. You just have to micro decide by this, you know, method and then have the patience to let the thing kind of solidify, which it does actually, or, or stabilize. Um, so that to me is, it's both lovely <clears throat> because it means I don't have to be any smarter than I am. It's a little scary because it means that the whole job that I built this life up around is just... Um, dependent on the state of mind, you know, literally the state of your mind at the time that you're editing. And that's a, a bit, um, a bit daunting. But when you add in the fact that you get to do it over and over again, it becomes a little bit uh, friendly to me. It feels like that. I think if I ever get stuck in a story, I'm just going to throw in a samovar 
because so many of these stories had samovars and it's such an <laughs> awesome word. I thought maybe maybe you could just um, have a sub subtitle for this, like stories with samovars. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny that that is kind of there's a kind of wisdom in that because, um, you know, here, here's how I think it. OK, so <clears throat> there's it, here's another metaphor for stories that um, th there's an overstory, which is the, you know, will Romeo and Juliet get together? Uh, will Scrooge be reformed? Uh, just the stuff that we're reading to find out. And then, especially in the short story form, I think there's an understory that's happening. Uh, the story might not even know what it is right at the beginning, and you, you might not, but you sort of feel it coming up like a shark, you know, underneath. So one of the dangers of writing is that we know too well what our story is about, you know, like that kind of thing where you go, oh, I've got a, an idea for a story, and then you just go and do that thing. It's almost always a letdown because I think I, my, my theory is because if I have an idea for a story and I know why it's important and I just type it up, you, the reader, have essentially been left out of that process, you know, because that little momentary give and take is sort of absent by my, been made absent by my agenda. So when you um, are, so one of the, one of the sub skills, I guess, is, you know, everybody has to start with some idea. And after you've been writing a story for a while, you have some sense of what it's about. So how do you get the necessary element of disruption in there? How do you, how do you throw yourself off your own plan, really? Because if you just execute the plan, you're going to be a disappointment. Injecting a samovar is actually one way to do it. You know, Raymond Carver had that story of he, he was writing and he was a little bit stuck. And then I think, what was it? The, the I can't remember the, the exact thing. But it was like he was he gets up to vacuum in real life. He, he got up from writing, was vacuuming, and then the phone rang and he picked it up and it was a salesman. So when that was done, he just went back and he just put exactly that into the story right where he was. And I think the idea is that whatever plan he had, that event uh, disrupted it. And then the story had to sort of grow over that bump in the road. So if you put a samovar in, when in doubt, put in a samovar, you, you know, <laughs> you, you'll, you'll disrupt your own plan. One of the, the things that this kind of reminds me of, even, even you know, putting Raymond Carver, putting what, his phone call into his story is that we can have these plans and these hopes and something that you wrote about, about yourself that res really resonated was that we, you wrote how little choice we have about what kind of writers will turn out to be. And, you know, young writers who, who might be reading this or who might read maybe Rachel Kusk or, or Jenny Ophil or, or like a spare kind of writing might be like, yeah, this is where I want to be. This is exactly the kind of writer I am. But then they start writing and they find out they're not. That happened to you. You were trying to write these maybe heady stories and then you realized you had a more humorous tone to yourself. And I think it's both like um, taking the path of least resistance and also really being able to let go of something and accept what is. Yeah, that's beautifully put. And that, to me, that's the most beautiful, bittersweet moment in an, a young artist's life is when, you, you know, you find out that the, the superpower you want to have is not the one that you were given. You know, I, I always say it's like if you, you know, you grew up in a house where where Shostakovich was king, you know, and, and all you ever wanted to do in your life was write these brooding minor keyed string quartets. And you wrote some, but every time you played them, the audience would doze off, you know, that nothing, no, no power in it. And then to console yourself, you'd pick up your accordion and play a polka, and suddenly everybody's dancing. Well, then, then you have to kind of say, all right, so do I want to be uh, a drag? You know, do I want to be somebody who's imitating somebody else uh, out of a sense of um, an experience I had years ago, you know, when I read whoever that writer was? Or do I want to be fresh? Do I, do I want to um, delight people with what, what is actually coming through me? And the really beautiful thing is you might not even know what's coming through you or be able to control it. All you can do is summon it up, you know? And so I think this is, you know, uh, for me, the way it worked was that I, I noticed it in real life. If I was anxious or happy or, you know, whatever, I was always inclined to be funny. That was just my, my mode. That was totally absent in my writing. And so the day that I said, okay, yes, I do want to charm and delight then the humor came back into it and the way, the way it was kind of clear. So that, that's one way. And now that, that kind of, um, that's a very dramatic way in which a writer can find herself. But I think there are, there are quieter ways too. 
But the to me, it's not so exciting to say, I, at 25, am going to decide the kind of writer I am and then be that person for the rest of my life. What's really exciting is to say, you know, I am large. I contain multitudes. I don't even know who I am. And I'm not any, I'm not just any one thing, you know, we can all feel that, you know, so many people in us, so many different energies and, and uh, inclinations. So then to say, all right, so I'm going to play around and see, I'm going to let all these different people that I am come onto the page and see which one has got the most energy. And then, haha, that's who I am. At least for now, that's who I am. And I think that to me is more, again, it, it's less anxiety provoking than thinking that you somehow have to choose the writer you're going to be in and doggedly be that one, even if it's not any fun. That, that to me doesn't sound like a good way to spend your life. So here's a question that I found lingering throughout this book, which again goes back to this idea of paradox. And maybe it's the difference between intuition and craft or art and craft was like you wrote about that when you found your voice in your first story and you wrote with humor and, and wrote about your own preoccupations, you wrote line by line. And I'm wondering how writing line by line squares with other ideas that you shared, like that, you know, a writer is a juggler and all the balls are in the air, but they have to be caught and that everything sort of has to add up and, and reach towards a purpose. And you also write about that causality has to happen or that, you know, one way to produce a thrill is to stop aiming at the target and concentrate on the feeling of the arrow leaving the bow. So what I saw in there, and I could be wrong, is this push and pull between just going step by step and letting happen what happened. But then this also idea that it has to add up to something. Uh, well, first, let me say parenthetically, for that first book, I was writing very much line by line. Um, now, not so much. Now, it, it, I do both. It comes and goes. But let's talk about the line by line idea for a while. My thing was, if I if I start a story, and I'm uh, kind of fighting it out on the line by line level, uh, then by the time I'm halfway down the page, the stuff above me is I always think of it as being undeniable, like it's happened. You know, by the time I get it revised into the place where I really love the language, it's that stuff is is carved in stone. So then that gives you uh, a more solid basis for making causality and making the bowling pins come down because you know what's happened already. You know, you know what I mean? Like you, you, there's no question about what's happened on page one. Then as you go to make page two, you're fully taking into account page one. So that to me, that's um, there's not really a contradiction there. You, you, you know, in this model, you have to know what you've done to know what's coming up. You have to create the expectation to deliver on it. Um, but I think, I guess the thing is with, here's the, with, with revision, as long as you're going to revise, nothing ever contradicts anything. Because if you, if you write one section of the book line by line and another one just bursts out of you, then you better, better take it. But still, when you look at the story as a whole, you know, you're done with the story now and you're looking at it and you're still revising, that's where I think you can start checking yourself for, you know, is, is there a causality? Am I, is it, Am I answering your question? I'm not sure. I, I I think you are. I think it's this push and pull between intuition and, and structure and meaning, maybe. Yeah, I mean, to me, the, the they're all they're kind of and any you know, we should say that all of this stuff, all of this stuff of giving writing advice is so it has to be treated with so much suspicion, really, because there is no general advice. Every person, you know, takes her her personality and her experience and then tries to make an intersection with the form. And, you know, really the, the only thing that a person ever learns is how she does it, you know. And even then, she learns maybe how she does it in this one particular story, and then she starts another one and all the rules are off. So I think we have to be a little, you know, uh, humble about that. But I, I, from my understanding as it is right now, um, intuition on the line level uh, makes a kind of, mystery. In other words, you, the writer, aren't exactly sure what's going on. You're not sure what's supposed to happen next. You, you write yourself out of your own certainty. Then the structure is really just, for me, structure is just accommodating whatever you've just done. You know, so you're, you're writing a story, you, you're doing it a line at a time, you're trying to maximize the power of the prose, and suddenly something happens that you didn't expect. Uh, then structure is kind of just 
accommodating that, I guess, you know, I don't know. It's, 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 there, there's a level talking about writing where you get outside of, you, you, you can't speak coherently about it anymore because of that intuitive element, I think. One of the things that you said that will probably stick with me forever about fiction is that what fiction does, and you said to put too fine a point would limit it. So it's enough to say incremental change in a state of mind in the reader. So you, you go in one place and you change a little bit by the end. And this was, I think, in reference to Gooseberries, which is probably ah, my favorite story in there. Although um, I'd never read Alyosha the Pot, which I also really, really, really loved. And Gooseberries, like on the surface, is so boring. It's just some people who take a walk in the rain and go to a house and have a conversation. And it's a story within a story. And it kind of ends, but I love this idea about just a small change in the state of mind. Yeah. And that's something we can, you know, we can track that. We can say, well, I started this story and I'd had no expectations. And then by page two, I was in a different place. And as writers, I think that's also what we use, you know, that, that we, um, all, all of the, like the point of all the action and the dialogue and the reversals and stuff is really, um, to put, the reader's mind through a kind of a, uh, I wouldn't say obstacle course, but you're trying to give the reader's mind a little bit of, of uh, playtime in the yard, you know? So you, um, all the things that we do, if we're tracking the reader's mind, then we have a pretty good idea of what kind of journey she's been on. And, you know, you might even think of it this way, that a story is just uh, a journey that's worth it, you know? Like, like you get through those eight pages and at the end, the reader's like, wow, that was really a, a nice little trip we just took. And, and you surprised me several times. You know, you, you set me up and you reversed it. Um, so I, in one place in the book, I talk about a, a writer being like a, a person who designs a roller coaster. And, you know, that person isn't really thinking about themes or politics or, you know, it, 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 the, the roller coaster designer is just trying to kick your butt, really, you know, trying to get you to have a series of experiences within a very short time uh, that you didn't expect, but that also somehow are in context. Like, you know, on, on like the good roller coasters I've been on, there's a little bit of a quiet time at the beginning where you're like, huh, this is, I waited for this, this is nothing. Then suddenly there's a big drop that, that takes your breath away and makes you a little scared. And you're like, uh-oh, I'm in the power of this, the person who designed this and they, they know I'm here, you know, and they're out to influence me. Then you, in that scenario, you know that the biggest drop is going to come at the end, you know, or maybe there'll be a big one that you, you almost pass out during. And then just to keep you awake, there'll be one little one before you come into the station. But the point is, while you're on that roller coaster, you're suddenly really aware that somebody designed this thing and they designed it with your experience in mind. And that's, I think that's kind of what a story is. You know, if, if you, if you get on the roller coaster and it just goes, you know, uh, on a flat level ground for 15 minutes and then drops you off, you're bummed out. But also if it, if it went down one really huge thing right at the beginning and then was flat the rest of the way, you're also bummed out. So you're in that beautiful, difficult relationship with the designer where you're looking at him and he's looking at you and you've committed to having a, uh, an intense experience. Um, you know, and so I think for me, when I think of it that way, all I have to ask myself in the middle of the story is, does this reader feel uh, that I'm in relation with her. Is she, does she feel like I see her there? Have I given her enough for her money, essentially, is what I'm, I'm asking. Uh, and if not, you know, it's funny, you can always find a way to give more. You know, if, if that's your goal, if, if you are on page eight uh, and you feel like you're somehow letting a reader down in some way, then at least that gives you something to do the next day, you know? I think it's so interesting how you've been reading these these stories, I don't know how long, 40 years, I'm not sure, but that you still find new things in them. And I, I think that alchemy happens because you're really finding new things in yourself. Like you're bringing the newest self you are in that moment to the story. I'm wondering if you could talk about that idea a little bit. Yeah, that's a beautiful one. That, that's really true. And these, you know, maybe you could say one test of a good story is if it will do that. Like if you read it at 20, does it speak to you? If you read it at 40, 60. Um, 
the other thing that I, I learned from this book is, I, you know, I had been, um, uh, let's see, I, the last time I taught this class was just before, it was the semester before Lincoln and the Bardo came out. So it was coming out in January and this was the fall. And I was really preoccupied with that and doing a lot of uh, like advanced work and spending a lot of time on screens and, you know, in that kind of state of slight anxiety that preceded the book coming out. And I noticed that these stories weren't speaking to me that much during that period. I was teaching them and I, you know, I, I knew what to do, but somehow they weren't, you know, that feeling when, um, you know, you're reading about like in Master and Man, you, you're reading it and you actually feel the cold and you, you smell the, the uh, horse blanket and, and that kind of extra um, level of, of sensory thing that can happen when you're reading. That wasn't happening to me. I was just skimming them and I was like, yeah, I, I used to feel this at this point, but I don't feel it. And that was kind of alarming. Um, so one of the reasons I thought, uh, I hope one of the things I hope would happen with this book was that the stories would come alive for me again. And they did. And what's funny is the way they came alive for me was I really didn't read anything else for about a year and a half, just these seven, or there was probably 12 stories that I considered just reading those stories and reading them really repetitively over and over and over. And then when I was writing the essays, going in and close reading certain paragraphs to make sure I wasn't misrepresenting them. And what was funny was I, I kind of thought that would kill them for me a little bit. You know, you, you do that much reading and they're just, they're not, they're not alive, but quite the contrary, you know, they, they are so alive to me now. And, uh, they're almost like entirely new stories from that process of analyzing, which is, I, I didn't really expect that. If you had to read only one of these again, could you pick? I, I am a big fan of master and man. That, that story, uh, is so crazy and good. Um, and I, you know, I found that like when I was doing that rereading, you know, sometimes it was a bit like, Oh God, I have to read such and such again. Oh my God. But with Master and Man, you know, I might have that feeling at the start, but when I started reading it again, suddenly I was, I was swept up in it. It's just a great adventure story. And it's, um, uh, it's a, it's a great cinematic adventure story that also managed to be deeply, weirdly philosophical. So that, that would be probably my, but you know, all these stories, it's a little bit like if someone said, which of your, you know, your six best friends is your favorite. You're like, well, they all have their, <laughs> they all have their virtues. But that, that one, I think, you know, just in anecdotally, um, people who are writing me about the book, they almost always call out that one as something that they uh, either had read before and it sort of blew their mind all over again, or they're just amazed to find that it exists at all. But can you trace how these Russian authors have impacted how you write or what you write? Like, could I pick out a story, like, for instance, my favorite story that you've written is Al Rustin. I love that story so much. If I picked it up and read it, could you tell me anything about how maybe the Russian writers or these lessons went into that story? For sure, yeah. I mean, m mostly I think you would see um, the... Uh, hmm. I, I would say there's a certain impatience in the causality. So, the, you know, that story had a lot of longer funny bits that uh, I would say under the, the gaze of these Russians, I would compress them down so that they would happen faster and then they would cause the next thing. So, for example, you know, he, he, um, uh, he goes backstage after his embarrassment and there were a lot of drafts where he just, you know, went backstage and thought about it and went home. But somehow, you know, Tolstoy was watching me and he's like, yeah, you know, shouldn't something happen there? You know, he, 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 you've, you filled him up with embarrassment. In other words, you filled your story up with the energy of embarrassment. Uh, don't you want to do something with that? Isn't that better? You know, isn't that higher story craft to do something with that energy uh, and keep it in the story? Whereas if he just gets in the car and drives home, there's going to be some dissipation of that energy. So, so that's for sure in there. And I think, too, for me, there's a little mental sort of swerve I do in, in relation to the Russians, which is to say I, I – my goal is that every story is going to be, uh, I don't know how to say it without sounding kind of stupid, but like it's going to be a moral ethical document, which, so in other words, so Al Rusin, it's a funny story, but I'm always kind of pushing like, okay, it's funny. Is there a way I can go one level deeper to where it's funny and meaningful and, and not just meaningful to it, it, but meaningful to everybody, you know? So in a certain way you're thinking, why is Al Rusin? all of us, you know, in what way am I Al Rustin? Um, and then you're always trying to deepen his dilemma so that 
you know, it's not just poking fun at him or not just showing that there's a certain kind of dirtbag in the world, but then push, push, push and see, you know, are we all sort of a version of that guy? Is, is there anything he could do to redeem himself? And th th those kind of questions, it's almost like you're in a little room and you're trying to push the walls out a little bit to make sure that the story is as deep as it could be. And that's a kind of a habitual thing that I, I think you, a person would tend to pick it up if they love the Russians because that's what these stories are always doing. They'll, they'll take somebody that, you know, maybe the person in another story would be a punchline. Uh, and then they keep saying, but you know, she's human. She's human. Let's just see. Let's just keep abiding with her and see if we can make the connection between this literary character and ourselves. And, you know, that's a goal I always have. And it's kind of, it's a, almost like a good, um, oh, what you call it, like a <clears throat> sort of a gut check in a story to say, have I pushed the walls out enough to make it, to try to do everything I can to make the story universal? Is there anything else that you want to say that I didn't ask you about a swim in the pond in the rain? Well, I mean, the only thing I'd say is, you know, even as I'm talking about it, I always sound like I'm giving so much advice. And, and honestly, the, for me, the big takeaway of the book is that there isn't, you know, general advice that's worth anything, really. It, I mean, the best teaching I've ever done is when a student gives me her story and I spent a couple of days really inside it, read it two or three times, line edit it, then we have a meeting about it. And, uh, and I'm taking her into account, her, her personality, her trajectory in life and all that, and I'm gently making the suggestions. And th that kind of mind-to-mind -mind thing is the best. That's the highest form. Um, so, you know, in the book, I try to, I kind of bend over backwards to say, this is just my take on these stories. The point is not, <clears throat> the point is not to give you the correct readings, but to make a little interplay between us, you know, and same, likewise with the writing and advice, you know, these little folksy metaphors that I have, they're, they're not anything. They're, they're not true. They're just kind of attempts to, um, uh, awaken, awaken something in the, the reader if it works, I'm so happy. If not, just reject it. You know, so there's a kind of playfulness in in this that can sometimes, you know, uh, in summary, it sounds a little a little do this, don't do that. But in truth, it's the whole game is trying to get the writer, the the aspiring writer, to um, go deeper into her own gifts. And I think the the watchwords for me are joy. You know, there should be some kind of now. It doesn't have to be happy joy, but it's kind of energetic joy, uh, and at the end of the game, it's about the writer, um, you know, finding out what, where her strong opinions lie and then joyfully in, indulging in those in a kind of act of faith that if she does that, all the other questions will get answered. All the questions about politics and structure and theme will be answered by those thousands of small, delighted decisions that she makes in her own work. Can you read something by another author that influenced you as a writer? Sure, and this is still influencing me to this day. This is just the opening of, um, of Gogol's great, crazy novel called Dead Souls. Um, into the gates of the inn in the provincial capital, NN, there drove a small but rather handsome sprung chase of the kind affected by bachelors, such as retired lieutenant colonels, staff captains, landowners, possessed of some 100 souls, in a word by all those regarded as gentlemen of the middle estate. In the chase sat a gentleman neither handsome nor yet of an unpleasant aspect, neither too fat nor too thin, not exactly old, not yet what you would call over young. His arrival caused absolutely no stir in the town, nor was it accompanied by anything out of the ordinary. Only two Russian peasants standing by the doors of a pothouse opposite the inn made a few remarks, which, as it happened, pertained more to the conveyance than to the traveler seated within. Take a look over there, said the one to the other. See that wheel? What do you reckon with a wheel like that? Would you make it to Moscow if you had to? Of course you would, answered the other. But not Kazan, would you? No, not Kazan, agreed the other. Whereupon the conversation came to an end. And then when the chase drove up to the inn, a young man happened by, dressed in white drabbit breeches, breeches, very short and tight, and a tailcoat with pretensions to fashion, beneath which could be seen a starched shirt front secured with a tulip pin in the shape of a bronze pistol. The young man swung around, surveyed the carriage, caught hold of his cap, wished the wind was about to blow off, and continued on his way.
So that's, you know, that's the, the opening of this book and nothing happens. <laughs> but I love, I love the, uh, you know, it's kind of like when you drive into a town, you know, if you're a young writer and you're trying to, you know, figure out what you should write about and you drive through your town and you see that it's just a bunch of random stuff. You know, there's nothing that, that, you know, so mostly you don't write that, but here, but Gogol did. He just wrote this moment where uh, a very nondescript person arrives and nobody cares and then this guy walks into the frame and walks out and somehow it's it's sweet and it's funny and for me the world gets made there's there's suddenly a village there even though all of the rules that i make in my book he he breaks them can you read something you wrote maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft yeah this is just from a story called 10th of december and it's near the end of the story and i i read this because um you know i i I talk a lot about revising and I talk a lot about, you know, uh, you know, when it, towards the end of a story, a writer has got the whole story in his mind. And so whatever comes out should sort of be to purpose and all this. And this is a section where, um, uh, there's a guy, I, I won't give too much away, but there's a guy who, who was resolved to, to end his life. He's got cancer. So he thought he was going to go out and freeze himself to death in the woods and sort of save his family all the trouble and the grief. So he did that, and uh, through various things that happened, he, he, he wasn't able to go through with it. So now he's been, quote-unquote, rescued, and he's in this house of this person he doesn't know. And um, so I'd written it to that part of the story, so the, the main action was over. Um, and I thought, oh, yeah, so what would happen next is that his wife, who didn't know about any of this, uh, would come to reclaim him. Um, and so in this section, uh, you know, so it was to the end of the story, there's kind of a lot of pressure, that kind of self-imposed pressure. And I just had the instinct to just draw on my own life, my own marriage and my own experience of, of being a husband. And so I just blurted this out in one take and I don't think I rewrote anything in it, which is very unusual for me. Um, then sirens. Somehow... Molly. He heard her in the entryway. Mal, Molly, oh boy. When they were first married, they used to fight, say the most insane things. Afterward, sometimes there would be tears, tears in bed, and then they would, Molly pressing her hot, wait, hot wet face against his hot, wet face. They were sorry, they were saying with their bodies. They were accepting each other back, and that feeling, that feeling of being accepted back again and again, of someone's affection for you, expanding to encompass whatever new flawed thing had just manifested in you. That was the deepest, dearest thing he'd ever. She came in flustered and apologetic, a touch of anger in her face. He'd embarrassed her. He saw that. He'd embarrassed her by doing something that showed she hadn't sufficiently noticed him needing her. She'd been too busy nursing him to notice how scared he was. She was angry at him for pulling this stunt and ashamed of herself for feeling angry at him in his hour of need and was trying to put the shame and anger behind her now so she could do what might be needed. All of this was in her face. He knew her so well. Also concern. Overriding everything else in that lovely face was concern. She came to him now, stumbling a bit on a swell in the floor of this stranger's house. Mm, thank you. Do you want to say anything else or you said it all? Well, I mean, just just that I, um, I guess you know, uh, I, I guess any dogma that we build up about writing, which is kind of what we do for teachers, uh, will crumble. So, you know, if you if you sat in one of my classes about the time I was writing this story, I was all about rewriting, all about perfecting, all about you know being one with the story and then uh, putting out the exact correct thing, but that you had to rewrite it a bunch of times to do it. And then that, you know, uh, I'd spent so much time in the story and in his mind that when the time came for the ending, I just, I, I just went, oh, I'm going to just pretend I'm him. And then it just came out pretty much. I, I don't think there was much rewriting. So I think, you know, one of the dangers of having any kind of uh, philosophical system about writing is that you might actually live by it, you know. <laughs> and the job that we're in is so much about swiveling, you know, being in every moment, being willing to respond to the actual energy of the story instead of honoring some belief system that you put in place. So if there's any mastery in writing, it's that it's that, you know, it's to say, uh, I'm going to show up every day with no tool set, no body of knowledge, no presumptions. And that's where what my skill is.
Where do you write? Uh, depends. I, like right now, I'm writing in a kind of a, a back porch in this house up in Oneonta, and it's just a kind of a narrow room with a desk at one end and looking out in the, into the yard. But I can. But from my time in the corporations, I can pretty much write anywhere. It doesn't matter. What do you do, or where do you go to get away from writing? I really don't want to get away from writing very much these days. At 62, I just want to make sure I, I uh, do everything I need to do. But but what I will do sometimes is um, I, I love to play the guitar. So uh, usually there's a guitar in the writing room. And if I'm feeling a little bit, you know, like things aren't going well, I'll just turn away and, and play a little bit. And that, that seems to do something to the brain wiring that's happy. Who do you show your work to first for feedback? Uh, to my wife, Paula. I, I try to send it to show it to her very, very late in the game when I'm pretty sure it's done. And then the whole thing is just to kind of watch and see if she has a genuine uh, emotional reaction to it. And if she does, then I send it to Deborah Treisman at The New Yorker. And if she doesn't, then I go back to work. How have you dealt with rejection? Well, I think um, for the most part, I've honored it. Like if, if, for example, if Paula doesn't like it, you know, there's usually a day where I'm like, why did I even show it to her? But deep in my heart, I know that there's something that could, you know, it could be better still. Uh, and likewise with the New Yorker, you know, if I send them something, they reject it. Uh, I, I've known Deborah a long time and she really understands what I'm doing. And so if she rejects it, uh, that just means there's more, more work to be done. And so I, I, I do the usual, you know, I, it hurts my feelings and I feel like I'm not valid anymore and I'm depressed. But behind all that, I know that it's actually kind of a gift because it means that there's a, there's a higher version of that story if I just, you know, could come back to it and, and hit it again. And what is your favorite word? I like the word autumnal. It's kind of hard to use in a sentence, but I, I love the sound of it and the way that it makes me think of autumn, you know, autumnal. Thank you so much for your time and this conversation. I'm so appreciative. I've loved it. And thank you so much for what you do. I know there are so many writers out there who really appreciate your, your wisdom and your uh, energy. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was George Saunders, author of the nonfiction book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain. If you'd like today's show, check out my first interview with George Saunders, where we talked about his story collection, 10th of December. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 280 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Anna North, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, and Alan Lightman. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.